Niklas Wiesén. Du vill köra det på engelska. Ja, du kör det på engelska. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. This week I have the great opportunity to talk to clinical psychologist Niklas Wiesén. Very welcome to this episode. Thank you, Kasten. Thank you. You work with uh, crisis management. You work in the uh, healthcare uh, field at a hospital. You have worked with the Swedish military. And we will probably go deeper into that. But first of all, what did you want to become before you knew you were going to be a psychologist? <laughs> well, I don't really... Yeah, require. I have a, had a lot of uh, dream uh, professions. Uh, it's been like a police. It's been a fireman. I think that most of the the things that I wanted to be gravitated towards first responders or or something like that. And a psychologist is really not in that realm. Um, I, I also became an officer, so I guess that's that's one part of of fulfilling my childhood dream. But uh, I. I do, however, not regret becoming a psychologist because I think that uh, as a psychologist within the first responder area or, or in the healthcare sector, you have a lot to offer aside from uh, clinician patient work. And basically, it was backwards progressed in, in psychology and became a psychologist. And uh, But actually, at first I became a, a psychologist and I worked for a couple of years in child psychology and in uh, psychology with uh, criminal youth. Then my my old interest of, of the military took over. So actually, I, I started this uh, officer program in, in the Swedish uh, officer academy, military academy at Kalberg, uh, and, and became an officer. And uh, since then, I've been working as a, a psychologist within the armed forces as an officer, mainly directed towards our uh, international uh, missions or peacekeeping missions. I, I actually sat on the um, uh, subway and heard two, uh, two young people talking with each other and, and one said, I wonder what the military does because they're never in war. So now you have the chance. Tell us, wh what do you do in, in the armed forces in Sweden, which hasn't had a war in 200 years? We are, ke we are keeping the peace. Yeah, we are very effective because we are keeping the peace. Now, the Swedish military actually does mainly two things. First of all, we protect the country, of course. We are educating and training troops for the defense of Sweden. But we are also engaged in international operations, in peacekeeping operations, mainly under the United Nations. And we have been so to a much larger extent in the last maybe 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And the thing with that is that we are trying to contribute to the peace. If we can lessen conflicts on other places around the world, we minimize or lessen the threat to Sweden. So it's a 
political security. So you do a lot of things all around, actually. Yeah, we have troops. Right now, we only have troops in, in Mali, but we have had troops in, in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, in, in Mali. A lot of places, we also have military observers for the, the UN in numerous places together with other nations. So we are we're widespread all, all around. And I think that, as you mentioned, the, from the subway, what's the military doing? That's something that we have maybe lost when we took away, as we say in Sweden, van plikt and conscripts. Everybody used to do their military service, but they don't anymore. Not everybody knows what we actually are, are, are doing. Uh, I, I think that uh, the armed forces you are uh, highly appreciated by by the community and and highly regarded but when you look at other countries you know if you look at the US and and of course European countries they are really proud of of their armed forces and there are a lot of you know that you should uh, honor the veterans do you think that we don't care as much as we should do about our own men and women in the armed forces or is it kind of natural because Sweden is, you know, a neutral country? I think it's not natural because we're a neutral country. If we don't have a relation to anyone that uh, goes away on a mission, we, we don't really know very much about it as a society. We don't really appreciate the time spent abroad by our soldiers and our officers. When we look at um, the veterans from North America, are much more appreciated, mainly also due to the, the fact that they are uh, constantly in some kind of, of conflict or, or, or warlike situation. Someone said that a lot of the, the gratitude comes from not having to go away by yourself. So you're actually thanking them for their services. And that's a common expression. Thank you for your service. You are doing it instead of me. I can be home with my family and with my kids. I don't get drafted and sent away to Vietnam or, or Afghanistan or whatever in history they have been. That's something that we we don't have really in, in, in Sweden. We don't have that culture. And we should be also thankful and glad that we don't have that culture. But that's one of the reasons I think that we we don't have that appreciation in the same way. But we are actually working with the armed Swedish armed forces are working with really hard to also acknowledge all of those who actually have gone away on uh, missions. So uh, a couple of years ago, we got the Veterans Day in May that is celebrated every year. And many of these opportunities uh, these days we invite veterans from older missions like in Congo or in Cyprus from back then. And it's very appreciated by the older veterans as, as well. I, I will not go into detail because this is not a political pod, but we you know we heard a lot about uh, raising tension in the world that uh, more money spent on the military and Sweden is very strategical geographical area where we have our country. So you hear a lot about that we should be more cautious about what's happening around us. Are, are you personally worried that we are actually heading towards uh, more difficult times, that we should actually be a little bit concerned that we might not be in, in peace like forever? It, it's really something tangible? Or, or um, do you think that we can be quite calm at home? Nothing will happen around us. Tough question. Mm, no, I, I don't. His, his, history will prove us wrong if we do, because after each and every major uh, war, afterwards we say that, well, now humanity have learned. We will never do this mistake again. 
Of course we do. I hope that it's it's nothing that I will live through uh, or anyone actually will have to live through for the upcoming generations. But um, you can never actually say no, because sometimes there are unstable situations and leaders uh, and you don't, don't really know what will happen tomorrow. I don't think that we should go out around and worry and, and anticipate but you can never say never. I've done some work down in, in the Balkans and in Sarajevo. And sometimes when I walk in Sarajevo, I look around and say that, well, this is just an ordinary day. And, and this is probably just the, like the day before this huge uh, attack. The day before was just a normal day. Everybody was just going out for groceries and everything. They had no idea this is coming tomorrow. I don't think that you should go around and worry that... Uh, um, neither of the superpowers should come come to sweden tomorrow uh, so hope for the best and maybe prepare a little bit uh, be, be prepared if yeah be prepared yeah. yes yeah. working in the in the swedish uh, armed forces is it something you would recommend for for you know young people thinking about their career yeah uh-huh. yeah def- definitely first of all i'm very proud to be a part of the swedish armed forces and i think that it's a really great employer it has a lot of opportunities within the the whole armed forces that you can do a lot of things you can educate yourself in in many many areas if you have like an interest in medicine i have a lot of friends who who became a, a first a medic within the armed forces and then went to medical school or, or nursery school or, or something after so yeah, it, it can be one of these really great First jobs for those who, who, who start at the soldier level, but, but also if, if you want to venture higher up and become an officer, I believe that many of the, the Swedish officers are, are very thought for by this civilian community because of leadership skills and experience. I would definitely recommend it. Uh, a psychologist uh, within the armed forces too? Yes, it's been a little bit different over the years, but basically it's been regarding our international missions. And what we are trying to do is to try to highlight the importance of mental health. We try to build programs and ideas how to prepare soldiers, uh, not just physically with the skill sets they, that they need to, to have with them, but, but also prepare them mentally, uh, what to expect and also how to manage under stressful conditions, how to um, monitor themselves for reactions and be aware that situations can actually bring you down over time if you don't uh, provide the right amount of rest and recuperation. That's been one part, the, the preparational part, uh, and also the um, supporting part during the missions. Uh, we have made short visits to, to the, the deployment sites, then is to actually um, monitor and, and to some assess how this situation is affecting the, the soldiers uh, at hand and how worried should we be when they come home, what p- preparedness for the mental and physical health status do they, they have when they come home? What preparedness level do we need to have to be able to uh, meet the requirements from them when they come home? It's been a process we have where we have learned pretty much, and we will get into that later because that's one of the ways, uh, one of the tools that we have used with, with, with the healthcare now. 
later years, it has changed a bit, uh, and we actually started in Mali to deploy psychologists to be operational psychologists, not to just come down for this short evaluating uh, or assessment. I was deployed six months in Mali as an operational psychologist, and then I was uh, together with the personal function, personal section of, of the staff. And what my job there was to have this constant awareness of what we will call me mental health stridsvärde, uh, also mental health combat fitness status regards to, to the mental health status. So we followed our staff during the, uh, the whole deployment to see when they did react to something, when they did not react to something, and what kind of stressors were uh, relevant to address from the leadership and so forth. So that's what I've been, been doing for, for most of our time. Early next year, I will finish a doctorate that I've been pursuing for several years at Karolinska Institute. Then I will go back to the, to the armed forces and, and hopefully bring that uh, experience and knowledge uh, to that arena uh, even even more even research yes mm, yeah. research into practical work excellent uh, so you said something about preparation uh, i was wondering can you uh, simulate the situations that you are going through before you leave and see the reactions or is the scenery so different when you are there so you you can't really prepare enough it kind of depends on what kind of stressors you are actually addressing we have this training called conduct of the capture for as an example that's not for everybody it's for personnel that are in some kind of risk of being left alone or captured by enemy forces they are going through a program called conduct after capture. So how should you behave if you're being taken capture in a way that maximizes uh, your survival in that situation? During that training, we actually provide a situation or training environment that really, really tries to mimic what the experience are from those who unfortunately have been taken cap capture. This is a kind of a large-scale scenery with a lot of people involved that plays different roles and it's carried out in a very realistic manner so and when we did we did a follow-up and did a study on on that so when we measured also stress hormones and some other factors as well i could see that even though they knew deep within that this is just an exercise the stress hormone levels was like almost tenfold <laughs> it was totally saturated with, with the stress hormones for, for the whole exercise and we also looked at the cognitive performance and we could see that uh, during the exercise uh, they lose uh, contact with some of the uh, cognitive abilities that they actually have. They, they, they kind of freeze and, and don't really know how, how to use what they've learned. And then we lessen the, the level a little bit of uh, stress. We lessen it so much that they actually uh, succeeds in, uh, in using those stra strategies. And, and the whole concept of that is, is called stress inoculation training. And this stress inoculation training aims at providing enough stress to make it hard, but not too much because you have to succeed. And then you get this experience that even though it's hard, I can succeed. So it builds this concept you call self-efficacy. You will be actually believe in, in, in your capacity. And it's a program that provides 
also for civilians, journalists that have been taken capture from experience, from mainly from journalists that have gone through this. When taken capture, they have felt that they have something to hold on to when they have this preparation. But that's for a very extreme group. So when it comes to the general preparation for most of the soldiers, their work and their exposure during the mission is so uh, diverse that there is no such way. Then we have to more cater to the idea that they have to monitor themselves. They have to be aware of the everyday stressors that they encounter and see, okay, how does this affect me? Does it affect me in a bad way or does it affect me in a positive way? Uh, how should I manage myself as a resource during my deployment? But uh, let, let's say uh, that someone uh, has been transferred from Sweden to another country and comes back and really does not feel well mentally. Uh, do you th- think that is uh, due to the, the personality or is it that they haven't been prepared enough or do they just get uh, such input from, from this station that they couldn't really be, be prepared of because there were too many stressors? So to speak. First and for, for, foremost, it's a very individual, uh, but it's not only individual because there's some similarities as well. I think that there's a selection of those goes away. The selection is sometimes called also the healthy soldier effect, uh, that there are selection of people that goes away that goes because they want something. Uh, and a bit of a risk and a bit of adventure is a part of what you actually want. So uh, I think there is a preparedness and an acceptance for for this situation in money. But sometimes you have vulnerabilities that you might not even know yourself. In, In a specific situation, those vulnerabilities can be triggered. When we have soldiers that actually come home that have some kind of uh, mental health issue and they also differ a little bit between different kind of missions when we look at the missions from the balkans during the 90s for example many of those who have seeken support uh, are exposed to to a concept called peacekeeper's dilemma and peacekeeper's dilemma is uh, when you're there as an observer when you see something that bad that's going to happen, you can't really act on it. So they've been become passive uh, observers of atrocities. That also constitutes a moral dilemma. Uh, and it's not the same as a, as a trauma, but it can be something that uh, brings them down for, uh, for a long time. Uh, so you're an observer, but you can't do anything and, and you just have to watch it. You just have to watch it. You have the power and everything, but you have to stand silent and watch it because you don't have the mandate and you can't act on yourself. It's both individual, but it's also the the contextual situation. For the people listening, um, one of my aims with with this podcast is, of course, not only uh, to talk about pain, but something interesting that will distract your mind from thinking about pain. And uh, in a very strange way, I think that all episodes kind of get connected anyway. Just for this episode, um, for the ones interesting in uh, the armed forces, uh, I will talk with pain specialist, and I think he is a major in the uh, 
British uh, armed forces uh, okay. who works uh, in a pain uh, program for veterans coming home, uh, amputated yeah. uh, soldiers from Afghanistan yeah. and so on. So um, uh, just look out for that one. Uh, yeah, I will. Uh, I will. Yeah. Uh, well, that was actually for the listener. You don't need to. You know all this already. <laughs> <laughs> but you talking about all these stressors and and things like that. We we did have a great stressor for a big part of our society, and that is of course the COVID nineteen. Yes. I mean, everyone who is listening uh, has been affected in some way. We have seen people applauding the healthcare workers. I think that. A lot of people don't actually still don't understand at all that the health personnel is doing behind the scenes. Uh, but you really know this. I'll just leave it open for you to kind of describe what you are doing, what you have seen and so on. And we'll take it from there. Well, we started actually uh, in the spring of 2020 when the corona uh, hit Sweden. Uh, or the world with, with full force. We, we started to work with the, a rather small ho- hospital, Södertälje Sjukhus in the Stockholm region, and their ICU unit. They had this boss there that, that said that, well, uh, this is a new situation. This is not the average crisis management, because most of the hospitals, I think, have, have a rather good organization. But the crisis is something else. The crisis is, uh, uh, is taking too much resources uh, at one time, but this is too much resources for a really, really long time. And that puts a lot of other demands on the organization. And he saw that and, and realized that I need help with this. Who could be good at this in, in this warlike scenario where you don't really know the enemy and the enemy in this case was the the covid virus we need to have some kind of a plan and and then contacted some some friends of mine who has been working with the armed forces as well for for many years uh, and uh, eventually left and worked for some non-government organizations humanitarian organization in conflict zones they are also experienced for working in these harsh environments and and together we realized that we have to address this uh, on so many levels, both leadership, both uh, the individual, uh, but also in in the working groups to see how can we first uh, assess the stressors at hand and and how can we address those stressors once we have made this assessment. As I mentioned, when we work with with the armed forces, we we work with the preparation phase, uh, maintenance and supportive phase, and after following up phase, and and we tried to do the same. Uh, The the thing was that um, the preparation phase was already over. This is like a train that has left the station, but it still needs maintenance. So our goal is to maintain and uh, support this train by actually bringing this oil can on board and, and oiling it. As someone said, the squeaky wheel that gets the oil. Uh, so we try to find those squeaky wheels and, and oil them up. And it's been really high and low. Uh, and I, I have this favorite example of, of the lows. When, when we came there uh, and we ventured up to, and we took part in, in their everyday activities and was uh, able to also follow them into the ICU unit. And, and at that time, there were limited supply of all of these protective uh, equipment. So we had to be there and the staff had to be there for many hours. They had this phone 
where uh, people could call in and, and ask about their spouse or ask, ask about their relatives. And they still use that phone because they have been having that phone within the world for several years. Now it was really, really hard to speak in it because uh, they were so stressed out by the situation. They didn't know how to take care of the patient. They didn't know everything. So everybody was uh, really stressed out. And also this, this phone was ringing all the time because all of the relatives outside were also very, very wor worried about the patients. So they struggled to hear and to answer with this phone. Our suggestion now is to bring it outside of the ward to someone that's not working with the patient. And that's a really, really simple solution. Can I take that stressor away? So we took that away. And the next time we came, they said, oh, it's so nice to not have the phone. So that was one of the first observations that we did. And we couldn't do that because we came from the outside. Mm. Uh, um, so what we tried to do then afterwards is was trying to find and, and uh, identify different kinds of stressors. We tried to find some way to mitigate those stressors by different strategies on, on a leadership level, on a practical level, on any level actually that, that we can find. I think that people on the stress, uh, we have this basically similar reaction patterns. I sometimes use this graph, this picture with a curve. Uh, and when you're going into a new situation, there is a peak in this curve. Uh, th this peak represents all the new adaptions that you have to make as an individual, as a group or, or an organization for this new situation. Pretty soon you actually adapt really well to, to this new situation and this become the, becomes the new normal situation. Then you lessen some of this anticipated and, and the new stressors that, that comes and you go down to this uh, average day performance level. Sometimes when you lose this acute stress, you also get this room to react because when you're in the crisis situation, you're just acting, but then afterwards you can react and there's this latent high stress all over and stress is doing two things it's bringing out the best in us and it's bringing out the worst in us what we can see that the best in us is of course the performance that we do as professionals but as individuals we also lack the energy to keep this psychosocial environment at the top all the time we become irritated we become less accepting of others faults and flaws and everything so what we could see after a while is was this internal stressor from the organization it's not conflict it's more like friction you get irritated with colleagues and you get all of these small frictions that also eats energy, energy that could be used towards patient. And, and this is a natural process. So, so what we did when we identified this is that we actually addressed this together with, with the staff and said that this is a natural process because we don't want to stigmatize and point someone out to say, this is your fault. We said, this is a natural effect of this heightened stress over time. And we need to acknowledge that and, and, and realize that we are just human in this environment. And if we do that, then we can also counteract it. So we, we talked about it, we problematized about it, and, and we gave everybody an incitement to actually think about what am I bringing? Am I bringing something that 
increases this friction, something that maintains it, or something that actually works against it, because there is no being really, really neutral in, in this. You can't go to a collective workplace and, and say that, well, I'm, I'm neutral, I don't bring anything, because you're part of it. So then you're just like maintaining the situation. So we talked about that and made that up in the open. Uh, we, we can't, in a situation like this, with psychological tools, erase everything, but we can create a higher awareness that actually make employees themselves um, want to change. So, so in a practical sense, when you're saying friction, is that that people are saying bad things to each other, bad comments, or that you talk behind their backs, or or look at them in a strange way, or yeah, exactly. The, the friction you you don't approve of the way of doing things, or you think they're doing it wrong, or you make this uh, comment, or you make this uh, movement with your eyes that okay, you do it that way, hmm, okay, but I should do it. I would do it the other way. And one can say that all conflicts should be unnecessary, but sometimes uh, it's it's really conflicts that emerge without actually individuals being conflict-seeking individuals. Uh, this is a situation that causes the conflicts, not that they are conflict-prone individuals. We have conflict-prone individuals uh, as well in everyday life without the COVID, but this is something that came from the high, heightened stress and frustration and anger of uh, not being able to live your life as, as you would like to live it, um, of course. So uh, being a, a, a head of department myself, a manager, sometimes I feel that I am kind of alone or, or if, to say that, that people don't really understand the amount of work that you actually do and try to fix things and uh, trying to be strategic uh, so person X doesn't say something to person Y until I've yeah. spoken to person Z. <laughs> so did you experience any problems at the management level uh, when you have this uh, extreme stress? I mean, if you sometimes feel alone before, what would happen if you get a, a COVID uh, pandemic on top of that? Def definitely, I would say definitely. I, I think that what you're describing is a bit of an everyday work environment factor for all leaders in some sense. What has happened during the pandemic uh, is that all of these uh, negative aspects also amplifies uh, quite a lot. In a situation like this is really stressful, regardless of your position, you, you need information that will make you feel a little bit more safe a little bit more in control and help you lessen your stressors. And um, how do you do that? Well, you do it with, with information, with, with um, confirmation from the leadership that you are doing the right things and everybody. And when you're really occupied with this situation, when even the leader doesn't know really what's happening, uh, it becomes really, really hard. But as you, as you mentioned, I think that regardless of how much engagement and how much I would say uh, from personal engagement from that particular leader, there was always this uh, little bit suspicion, maybe not suspicion, but so when with the staff, they were saying, well, those, those up in, in, the, in the management, they're just sitting in meetings. We are doing the real work. Uh, but they were working like so many hours. Uh, so <laughs> they, were, they were really, really occupied. Yeah. 
But you don't see it the same way. And management worked as well. Mm, yeah. We, we haven't really uh, practiced beforehand or rehearsed this conversation. So every question is a new one <laughs> for you. But uh, we have talked a lot, a lot about in, in the big picture, how you were doing. Um, but could you take like a, a practical example of a, of a problem and how you solved it? We have a set of tools that we actually have used and that I think is quite useful uh, on an organizational level because it addresses the individual. The first tool actually derived from this model that was uh, developed in, in the 2010 by, by the US Navy. It's called COSC, Combat Operational Stress Control. It, it's basically a way to communicate the four different levels of stress exposure. To make it really, really simple and really, really quick, green, that's where you want to be. You want to be in a green zone because that's when you have these, all these resources and, and you're well rested and fed and everything is, is great and you have great com camaraderie and everything. You have good resources. Um, eventually, you have to do some kind of work, put some kind of load on you and use those resources and then you venture into the yellow zone. And, and that's a, a normal day at work brings you into the yellow zone, but then you go home and then you fill up the batteries again and then you come back to the green cell and then you should have a healthy circle where where you you put in a, a energy and you take out energy you put in rest and you take out work and it goes around like that but if you either increase uh, the load or demands in, in such a way that it, it it's too much re related to the resource you have you will eventually not come back to the green zone or if you take away also the rest and recuperation, you will not come back to the green zone. So when you, whenever we get this imbalance between demands and resources, we risk moving towards this third zone, the orange zone. That's the zone where, where you don't really come back. You're, you're starting to suffer a bit. This is when we see this uh, irritation. This is when we start to become a lesser version of ourselves. This is when we don't really have the same cognitive ability. Most of those who have experienced level, times of, of, of uh, more severe stress, we, we realize that sometimes we forget things. We, we, we're not functioning in the, the same way as we should do cognitively uh, and so on. So it's a really, really important level to identify because if we do that, we can actually say that, well, oh, I'm losing track here. I need to put on, put on the brakes and get some kind of rest. And rest is not always just laying around watching a series on the, on, on the sofa. Rest can be doing something else at, at work, something that addresses another kind of resource. If we don't do that, or if the stress is really, really, really super intense, like in a trauma, we can go directly to the last zone, that's the red zone. Uh, by bringing that awareness to the staff, they could actually self-monitor and see where am I in this. We gave everybody this small brochure and, and an instruction. We had a lecture for everybody and said, this is how you can use this. Use this on yourself to see and use it also on your peers to, to see where you're at. And when you see that you're not coming back to the green zone, then you have to start to be aware. Because one of the hardest thing in this prolonged crisis management is to be able to hit the brakes. And that's hard for the leaderships as well. If you have a situation that calls for, you have to have 10 personnel uh, and 10 is all you have and you need to sustain ability over time. Then you might have to say that, well, I have 10, but I will only give you eight 
because I have to have two in a resting state. And when they two are rested, I will change two of the others. So I will keep someone in a resting state all the time. And then I can prolong my endurance. Then I can have this sustainability. But it's really, really hard to lessen the ambition when you're right up in a crisis and say, we will not provide this uh, with all our capacity because we need also to preserve capacity. And the thing that we, we did to, to provide the management with the tools for this is that we measured, we measured what, what we call combat fitness on a weekly, weekly, weekly basis. So we, we get, get a, a number for the leadership to actually use in strategic planning. When they say that this is what we can deliver based on an assessment, an assessment that has a long-term plan, plan as well. So that's one of the tools. And, and actually, we are still using it. We are now using it. Uh, we are almost up to two years now uh, since we started when, when we follow them on a weekly basis. So we can track this... Uh, balance between resources and demands since uh, April 2000. And we're doing it also in, in some other healthcare care units where we started to, to measure the stuff over time. Let's say that someone sees that they're going into the yellow zone and you just said that if you need to rest, it's not really that you need to lie on the sofa, but you need to do something else. I'm, I guess they can't just walk into another ward and say, hey, I'm here to do something else. <laughs> you need to have some kind of a strategic and practical plan. Someone has eight people. I can't have seven. And you come in there and say, hey, this one needs to move. How, how was that accepted? How did you do that practically? In everything that has to do with personnel, you need top commitment. If you don't have commitment from, from the management leadership, it's a setup of failure. You have to have this great communication with those uh, who are in charge. And I think that awareness that it's better to take precautionary measures and, and keep and sustain this combat fitness uh, instead of just burning the, 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 the candle in both ends as you, and, uh, and end up with nothing le left. If you have that insight, I think that you will also gain acceptance for, for this. It's several levels. Uh, the first level is that we brought everybody this, this tool to, to help them monitor themselves, bring awareness of their own specific reactions to this situation that we had really no experience of uh, but on an organizational level we did this structured strategic weekly follow-up we divided the staff in, in smaller groups of about five six persons and whenever we got a group that was below the threshold uh, it was an incitement for, for the leadership to actually address that group and see why why are your group so so low what what stressors are most uh, prominent in, in, in your experience and the stresses that we measured in that, that sense, it, it, we talked about them and we made an assessment before to see what stresses are relevant. Uh, workload is one of the stressors. We, we measured psychosocial work environment. Uh, that is how, how do we feel at work uh, and how do we behave with each other? And that was the one that actually st struck out really early that because of the frictions. 
Uh, we also looked at general worry or anxiety. Sometimes it's the group that we least expect. We use this in, in Mali and everybody is talking about the, the stressors and the risks of the uh, recon soldiers that's out in the desert. Uh, but uh, uh, when we measured the stress, uh, we could see that it was this uh, supply soldiers that was working in the uh, in the camp that uh, was at the workplace 24 seven uh, and they had really, really much to do because there's a lot of material going back and forth and everything. So they didn't ever have like, like this time off while the soldiers that went out in, in the desert for operations, they came back and when they were back, they had this resting time recuperation, they, they maintenance of their vehicles and equipment and stuff like that. When we measured it, we could see that, well, this supply guys, those are the ones that's actually so, so stressed out that we need to actually intervene. And we did that, but we have, would have never, identify them without this structured tool because the culture is also so that they wouldn't come to us and say we have too much to do we are we're really worn out everybody's trying to do what they can with what they have so so in conclusion to to make something like this work the leadership really needs to understand the importance of the interventions and you need to have skilled personnel who work with it uh, like you <laughs> Uh, you have to have an acceptance among the personnel that you're actually doing this and you need some kind of follow-up, follow-through that they see that it's not just a one-time thing. You could actually have these weekly meetings and I guess that you have maybe published some results or, or internally shown the effect in yes, some way. Yes, uh, th there have been some uh, from the larger pictures uh, and you mentioned follow-up. Uh, we also did this weekly assessment, but we also made this uh, large uh, follow-up when soldiers are coming home. So in last fall, we did it and we followed up everybody with a, with a procedure we call screening and we, we provide everybody with these screening tools and we also so made sure that there were the representatives of that support uh, on site when we did it so they could directly go to them and, and get this appointment for, for following up and now you're talking the military personnel no this was this was in Södertälje we need to do the same as we do with military personnel we need to do it when they can come home now we are doing the similar with over 800 staffs in Region Östergötland so from Lean Chapping's Sjukhus and the North Chapping's Sjukhus, we're following up uh, staff from intensive care units uh, and operational units. And, and preliminaries so far is the, from, from both uh, Södertälje and from Region Östergötland is that around 30% have some kind of reaction that puts them a little bit at risk. Many of those who get encouraged to actually take and seek support because we would say that most of them are in the orange zone. They're not, they're not clinically ill or affected or, or uh, as of now, but they're in a reacting phase. Many of those who are in the risk zone or higher uh, are not aware of it. They think that this is the normal reaction that everybody is, is in. The, this is, it's not just me. Everybody has gone through it. Yes, everybody has gone through it, but you and some others have reacted stronger to this situation the stronger reaction is not to say that you have a, like a, the vulnerability or weakness or anything it's just that uh, you 
adapted in another way to this situation. I think that some we see would actually fall under this category adaption disorder when you have this high intense stress and, and it becomes normal. And when the high intense stresses lowers, you're still in, in the reactive mode. So it takes really, really long time. And if it takes too long time, you risk both mental and physical health uh, impact. So how is the health personnel right now, you think? Are they all back in business? This is one of the things where I think this is important because they are really not back in business. Uh, this is if like you were running a marathon. You don't start the next race right after the marathon. You will have to have some time period. And when you talk about uh, this kind of load, it takes some time actually to recover. And that is something that is actually bringing bringing them down so i think that what one as a, as a management leadership must acknowledge and be aware of that and of course it's it's been a challenge because you have all of these planned operations at hold uh, and 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 whenever when this started to to go down it was like okay now we have this uh care depth or board schools uh, that we talked about uh, and a lot of a lot of staff that we talked about, they were really, really provoked by this whole concept of, of, of care depth. Yeah, that the healthcare had to repay something that they hadn't been done uh, and they had really worked uh, really hard. Yes. And now the society says that you, you have to take all this, um, we have to get back in line. Uh, it's provoking. It really is. We, we, we try to call it delayed healthcare. Yeah instead of yeah i think that's better yeah much much better but let's say now then uh, we can't do much about the coming months but let's say that everything uh, has passed uh, another wave and then we get some kind of uh, new spike uh, protein mutation so there will actually be a fifth wave and now we're in the summer uh, and it looks quite yeah. good but everyone says that the next fall or winter it will hit us and now you're a manager and you haven't really thought much about these psychology psychology things more like yeah. they need to get their vacation and then it's fine yeah. what would yeah. be your practical recommendation for someone at a management level or or a worker so to speak what should they yeah. do uh, to you know, prepare or so, so it's not too late. It's it, I mean, it is too late to start doing something in the middle of a crisis. Uh, First of all, what I, what I think that one of the core functions is, is that you have, have, have to have some kind of a system for actually continuously addressing the, the psychosocial work environment, because the psychosocial work environment and psychological safety is basically about uh, how do you like it at work? Do, do you like your work? I mean, if you like your work and you like your colleagues and you have this great social environment, then you will also bring loyalty and sustainability with the staff. So that's that's one of the main things. I talked to a colleague. She had, she had been speaking with a nurse. And I use this sometimes as an example because I think it's really, really great. The nurse said that I want to feel that my employer wants my best. That my employer wants what's good for me. And that's really easy to say, but it's really, really hard to convey that as an employer, as a man and as management, even though that's your intention. How do you put that message through 
it's like sometimes like being a parent you do things that you know is better for the kids but they don't like it it's not like following their, their every wishes it's providing them with a general feeling that i know that my bosses are actually looking out for me and it's easier said than, 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 than done, definitely. Then I think there's an area where we have not really ventured, and it's a really hard area, and that's the area called welfare. Welfare is a concept that is actually used in, in most Western military uh, situation. And uh, during the, the start of the high-tech companies, the, the computer companies in Silicon Valley, they couldn't really compete with uh, money and, and salaries. So they had to compete with welfare uh, instead. And I think it was the Yahoo that uh, they, they like provided childcare, they provided, you could leave the, your laundry, you can bring your car, they would fix and, and wash your car and everything. All of these everyday small stressors. And then, and then the general idea of welfare is actually to see what can we do that can lessen the other stressors outside of the workplace. And I think that um, when we started uh, in, in this area, uh, we, we looked at all these welfare factors. That's something for the whole society because this becomes really, really hard. Because if, if I say you, you should provide food, uh, uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, and an evening snack for all the staff that's working these 12 hour shifts. The first response is, well, we can't do that because of the tax rules. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a global crisis. Uh, some of, they provided free parking spots for the, for the staff in, in Stockholm and, and, and directly say, well, well, then they have to pay this uh, specific tax because it's like a, a benefit. We have done it before. We had these uh, fires up in, in the northern part of Sweden several years ago, I think it was 2018, where civilians provided uh, a lot of resources even before the, uh, the government did so. Uh, they were driving there with, with, with drinks, soft drinks, food, uh, everything that they needed uh, because all of the, the firemen came from all, all over the country and, and the, the, log the logistics weren't really there. They were, uh, put to, they were sleeping in garages on, on tent beds and everything. And uh, eventually uh, the government said that, well, uh, you have been, uh, have been given free housing and free food, so we have to tax you for that. And they did. They, have, they tax them for it, even though it's not provided by the government, but that's the rules. And I'm not saying that the government is, is doing it wrong. I say the rules is not adapted for situations like this. So we need to have a welfare rules as well that relates to this. And I think that even though we have those rules that we have, we can as organizations, as the healthcare, for example, we can prepare and plan ahead. You have worked a lot both in the military and the healthcare sector, so the stress hasn't only been on the management and uh, the worker on the floor, but also the psychologist working with it. I mean, you must have been under tremendous stress. Uh, what is your oasis? What do you do to recharge your batteries? Oh, what do I do? Well, um, of course. Uh, 
taking everything else away, I'm just a, like an individual, like the, the next, like the next man, and I react to things uh, just as much as, as the next one. And, and I think that uh, it's it's really important to um, to to realize and acknowledge that regardless of your education and your preparation and everything, you're just a human, and be aware of where where do I fit in into this. Uh, um, Cost continuum. Am I am I green, yellow, orange, or, or, or red? Uh, and when I came home from 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 Mali uh, on, on the last last month, we suffered from some uh, uh, attacks towards the camp, uh, and that puts life in, in rather much of a perspective. Uh, and it also uh, puts really the gas pedal from the sympathetic nervous system uh, in, in in full throttle for, for a really long time, and it. It takes time to readjust and readapt, uh, uh, and uh, what I did was that uh, I, I tried uh, to to use my own methods and, and what I would say, uh, and I realized that well, coming from me to me is is not the best way. So <laughs> actually, I went to to talk to a colleague uh, and and got some some support. And sometimes you need to bring it out of your own head. And have it handed back to you. You shouldn't treat your relatives, and you shouldn't really treat yourself. Then I understand. No, you you cannot do that. (laughs) So, so uh, just to end with something positive here. Now we we talked about some really heavy duty stuff here. I must say, but what is the best thing with being a psychologist? I mean, uh, tell us about uh, what do you enjoy with your work. I think that psychology is something that you can apply to basically any area. Uh, I'm, I'm into behavior, uh, and uh, I, I, I always try to understand uh, behavior in basically any setting. And I think that it uh, it, it it makes uh, any arena a possible work arena. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the great things with being a, a psychologist. I don't work uh, nowadays as a clinical psychologist with individuals, um, but I, I work on an organizational level. And I think that by providing uh, insight and uh, analytics to this, uh, to, to on an organizational level, you can actually do change for change that actually affects a lot of people. And I think that's that's something that is really, uh, really fun. I, I, I try to uh, share much of my experience. I put a lot of text out there uh, on, on social media that uh, identifies my experiences and, and what I think has been useful or, or not. Uh, and uh, I hope that the, this kind of open source sharing of, of, of uh, the experience can can benefit uh, because most of the time it's, it's not like rock and science. It's uh, it's just a structured way of looking at uh, your, your surrounding and, and you can do that in any environment. That's what's fun being a psychologist. But do you walk around and analyze everyone you're talking to? I mean, should I be afraid now that you kind of think that Oh, Karsten, I, I can see what type of person he is now. Oh, I did it within the five first minutes. So. <laughs> oh, no. I will, I, will send, I will send you a bit. Oh, yeah, of course. 
no, uh, no, I don't do that. I, I don't do that. Uh, I think that uh, that's a misconception, and and often you get that. Uh, of from, course. From, oh, you're a psychologist. Wow, you're analyzing me now. So now it takes effort. So you're not you're you're not a, a party pooper. We, we can still talk to you no, at the dinner you. without you judging us. No, I can be a party pooper because I'm a boring person. But <laughs> but but no, uh, um, no, I, I'm not a party pooper, and in that sense, uh, and I think that it takes effort both from the person that you're trying to uh, understand and, and, and from the psychologist, they are doing it together. It's not like you observe someone on the street and say, well, that's, that's a, it's a, such and such person. You, oh, that's work. something very good for all of us to Now, that was a misconception <laughs> and we can kind of be rest assured that it's a job like ev everyone else has. Uh, we can still invite you to dinners and feel very safe that you are Absolutely. just an ordinary. It's not like a superpower. No. <laughs> That's good. So uh, it has been such a pleasure to talking to you. Do you think, uh, Niklas, that we have um, uh, for forgotten anything, something that we should have said or that you feel that you should have said that I didn't ask about? Or did we cover everything from alpha to omega? Yeah, I don't really don't know. I think that the, the main part uh, we covered, and, and, and the, even though I didn't maybe said it, but I think that the key in all of these uh, tools and all of these examples is awareness. Uh, if, if you have an awareness, an objective and, and subjective awareness uh, of uh, these situations, especially when we are in stressful situations, then we are... Uh, really really one st step ahead so we need to be be aware well uh, it has been very very interesting and we are so uh, thankful uh, in the society for your effort and uh, all all the others that are working uh, with the psychology part within the covid 19 all the effort that people are doing out there so hopefully we won't need as much service as we do, uh, but it will be some hard times ahead too, I think. Uh, but it has been very, very interesting to hear yeah. what you, you are, have been saying. So uh, thank you so much. And maybe we'll talk later on. Who knows? Yeah. Take care. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kasten. Nice to be here. Nice.